Welcome to the Warlord Games official podcast. My name is Brad, and today we are going to be talking Gates of Antares. But before that, there is a lot to discuss, because Warlord Games, if you haven't been paying attention online, has a ton of great releases that they've been dropping on us. But that's only the beginning, the surface of the, the iceberg, so to speak. Uh, our Titanic is sailing directly into... Uh, uh, at least painful seas for my wallet in the near future because, oh my God, the future is bright. And to tell us about all of these amazing things that are coming for us shortly is, of course, my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, Paul Sawyer. Welcome back to your own podcast. Hi, Brad. How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good. It's been one of those days. You know, life is good. Speaking of life... Um, could you point out where the life rafts are? I'm not sure about the uh, Titanic <laughs> reference. I'm just saying, my wallet's going to be in a lot of trouble if uh, <laughs> if the rumors are true. Uh, I'm not saying anything about the quality other than it's amazing and I can't wait to start <laughs> spending money. Oh. oh, we like that. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure you do. Um, that's the whole point of it all. Uh, but yes, no, uh, I I apologize for that analogy, and I'm just really excited. Um, Paul, let's let's get down to it, though. How have you been? What have you been up to? I, I've been up to ever such a lot, really. I mean, as you know, and as you, as you mentioned earlier, we, we are producing lots and lots and lots of great stuff uh, across all of our game systems. Mm. Um, yeah, everything gets a look in. Uh, whilst we might focus on on uh, something in one month, yeah, the next month comes along, it's something totally different. Uh, and just looking at uh, our release schedule for you know the next few months, it is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, so so most most of my time's been yeah making all that happen, um, making sure all that happens at least. So my my, my hobby time's been fairly limited this time around, although. Um, we're working on a, uh, a secret project, which isn't all that secret, really. Mm. Um, Rick, Rick Priestley, he of Warhammer and 40K fame, mm. uh, has been playing around with a, a, a new game system, which is uh, uh, based uh, rather heavily on the, uh, the Gates of Antares game, which is uh, so popular. Um, but this time it's something a little different. Mm. And... Um, uh, Rick's going back to fantasy. That's very exciting news. Yeah, a lot, lot of us are, yeah, really into our fantasy. Obviously, from our for our uh, time of war with Warhammer, mm. uh, and the, the, this happily coincides with me rebuilding uh, an army I had years ago um, that, that some people might remember from uh, White Dwarf, which was my Beastmen army from Taylor Four Gamers. Oh yeah. So that's something that I. Uh, I, I gave away to a friend who was getting into the tournament scene many years ago. He ended up um, serving abroad, and it all got horribly lost. So, uh, just a bit of a nostalgia thing for me was to uh, to, to you know start rebuilding that. But rather than doing it uh, specifically for Warhammer, I'm now doing it for uh, for Rick's new game. Fantastic. So hopefully, hopefully that'll see uh, the light of day, and we'll be able to talk to Rick on a, a future podcast about that in. Uh, yeah, in future months. Now I know I'm I'm not supposed to ask, but I'm going to ask one little tiny question: Is this a rank and flank type of game? 
It's not. Ooh. It's, it's, it's not Warhammer. Okay. Uh, again, it's it's very much based on Antares, so it's more about multiple war bands. Fantastic. So whilst there are things that can can rank up, uh, it is more of a, a skirmish game. You kind of, you know, 50, 60, 70 figure aside thing mm-hmm. rather than you know, your true skirmish, which is, you know, 10, 15 models. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's certainly larger than a lot of the skirmish games that are out there, but it isn't um, um, Warhammer again. Nice. I think that, 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 that ship has sailed. Yeah. Definitely, and I, I yeah, I, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing more about this as uh, as God, because one of the things about fantasy that was wonderful was just the hundreds of models that you could put on the table in beautiful ranked formations. But I just don't know if I have it in me to paint that many models at this point. And just you talking about that model count that really does sound like the sweet spot for me because it feels like you're putting an army on the table and at the same time you don't have to paint three years to get the army on the table yeah absolutely i mean with with my limited hobby time i'm still managing to um get through get through a decent sized army i mean i, I think you know without wanting to steal steal uh, rick's thunder mm. you probably you, your average game is probably going to be yeah, uh, five, six, seven units. Nice. Um, and unit size is going to be yeah around about five to ten models. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's it's very achievable to uh, to get into. Um, but let's let's leave that one for one. Yes, for sorry, a, a few, <laughs> shouldn't have asked. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, no, it's, you know, you're excited about it, and you know, so, so are we. So mm. we'll, we'll throw that one out there for now. But uh, that's something we're working on in the background. Beautiful. Uh, and we've got lots more going on right now, so we'll we'll let Rick talk about that in the future cast. Fantastic. Well, I've I've actually been up to a little hobby myself. Um, I know that you and I have been talking online, and you've been following some of the posts through my podcast page. Um, <laughs> So I've been getting together with a couple of uh, local friends. Um, Some of them are new to the bolt action scene, old school gamers, but um, new to bolt action. And so they've been building up armies and terrain. And I got together and a friend wanted to try out a new Soviet army. So I've been really trying to get sort of themed games on the go. So I pulled out a Eastern Front Village um, terrain board that I put together for a tournament I ran um, that I talked about on a previous cast but that I hadn't really had an opportunity to play on myself. Um, you know, I, I tried it out once, but I hadn't actually, you know, really enjoyed it. So we got together, and I got a, uh, a matching late-war uh, winter German force, and he had got a late-war Soviet force, and we got to play a game. And it was just, it was laid back, it was, it was relaxed, it was a lot of fun. Um, just, and it, and it totally clicked just to see matching armies on a beautiful table, and it just, it was it was everything I wanted in a game. And as if that wasn't good enough, following week I got together with another couple friends, one of whom has been converting an army. Um, he's got, oh, he just bought a bunch of the super late war German models that uh, Warlords made, and he's been converting them up. He got the Battle of Berlin box as part of the army deal. Um, and he just he's just built this gorgeous board where he's dug in subway tunnel entrances. Um, he's dug in trench works. 
Um, there's wrecked buildings, uh, roads with debris all over them. And then on top of that, he's got this beautifully painted army that revolves around a king tiger. So we started talking smack online, as you do. And so I changed the army I was going to play. And I ended up bringing one of the Warlord IS-3 models. And so we had the big dukeroo between a King Tiger and an IS-3 um, in the ruins of Berlin. Now, again, I know that, that the IS-3 never, pl- never was in Berlin. However, it was fantastic. It was a lot of fun. And we also had a Canadian uh, veteran army show up on the scene. So we almost played a what if battle. Um, what if Berlin, the Battle of Berlin lasted longer and, you know, IS-3 rolled in and then you had Canadian forces. So it was vaguely historically accurate, but it was so much fun. Uh, it was just a blast just to play some really nice players. They were tight, close games. Um, nothing really... It wasn't a blowout one way or another, so you you felt like you had that challenge going. But by the same token, you know we weren't trying to kick each other's teeth in either. It was just it was just good times, and I've just really really been enjoying that narrative aspect of bolt action recently, and it's it's just fantastic. Well, that's the part of the hobby that really appeals to me. I'm 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 not uh, too fond of the tournament scene. Mm. I, I would I'll always go for for themed um, games or or reenactments of fights. Um, I love the what-if scenarios that you were talking about. Totally. Um, but very much recreating World War II um, rather than you know, just uh, random matchups. Not that there's anything wrong with them, of course. It's just not the thing that uh, <clears throat> appeals to me personally. I lo- uh, lots and lots of people love the tournament scene and uh, mm. you know, playing random games against random armies. Uh, but... Yeah, push comes to the show. I'd yeah, I'd rather be refighting uh, um, the battle in Arnhem or mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the Battle of France um, in the Pacific, and actually having themed armies with great-looking terrain that matches, like you say, uh, and yeah, the, the more laid-back aspects of it. So you can yeah, you can not just talk about the game, but talk about the history as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, our our hobby as John Teller, their glorious leader, um, often says, is a broad church. It is. And lots and lots of people have lots and lots of different ways of doing it, from being mainly painters to mainly gamers and all things between. That's right. Well, after my game against the King Tiger, I now know more fun facts about the King Tiger than I thought I'd ever know. Uh, And it was just just to click back to what you were saying, it was like, yep, a lot of great conversation. Um, And those guys were learning the game, too. It was the King Tiger player's first game ever. Um, oh, good, and, good. Oh, he was like, wait, this does what? How does this work? This is great. And yeah, he just left so passionate that he actually has gone out and bought another army already. And I've just gone, well, my job here's done. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, no. So we're actually talking, um, the guys, everyone at that table is actually talking about playing a different army. I already have a battle of the bulge American army. And so those guys are talking about now creating bulge armies. And we're now talking about playing maybe a miniature league slash event day using missions out of the Battle of the Bulge book and the units and the army list out of that and the other corresponding armies of. And everyone's super into Battle of the Bulge, which is really exciting for me because it's one of my favorite conflicts in World War II. Um, and I love reading about it. And uh, yeah, it's just, I'm, I could not be more excited. It's fantastic. Ah, and I just, so you, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. Sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry, across you. I, I was just going to say you, you'll have been um, rather chuffed with the recent releases, then with the uh, the the winter plastic Germans and the uh, 
um, the new metal figures for um, the the Winter American uh, USMPs, which obviously can be used as Brandon mm-hmm. Burgers. Uh, and uh, the three characters, I've jumped off the top of my head, uh, Lieutenant Spears running at Foy, mm-hmm. uh, General McAuliffe of Nuts fame, mm-hmm. and Sergeant uh, Lopez Mendoza. That's right, with the yeah. LM, uh, with the 30 cal. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we, we, haven't, we haven't finished with the, the winter at all, and uh, obviously putting um, plastic winter Germans out there you know, covers a, a lot of ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, I guess uh, one or two of those will be finding their way into your bulge games. It's actually funny you mentioned that. I was literally, when we were having that both talking at the same time moment, I was literally saying, so um, last, I believe, Saturday morning um, after I opened my, you know, because the Warlord uh, newsletter arrives here as I sleep on Friday night, uh, I opened it, saw the new metal uh, American paratroopers in winter gear, and mm-hmm. uh, which I always wanted to add to my Battle of Bulge American, and I may have slipped uh, a squad of those into the uh, the old order cart, and they are on their way to me right now. So I cannot wait for those to arrive. And I I also already have an existing American, I mean uh, German Battle of the Bulge Army because I am passionate about it. But uh, turns out I pretty pretty sure I needed a Brumbar, so that is also in the same uh, box. So I'm very excitedly. Um, getting toys for my existing armies to flesh them out for the new league because you know nothing like a good event or um, you know, you need something to paint for sometimes and just adding existing units to existing armies can be fun but um, now that I have something to paint for uh, I'm kicking that up a notch and I'm really excited about it so yeah your secret is safe with us <laughs> the missus the missus need never know uh, i'm pretty sure she can hear me downstairs because i'm loud <laughs> but, oh busted yeah exactly uh yeah paypal money's good for something right um anyway moving oh, on the, the, the secret account <laughs> yeah, exactly uh well let's move on then so um look there's been so many great releases i mean you mentioned all of those winter models and you didn't even mention the new box of winter british models that have come out no, it's uh, it's it's something that uh, we wanted to do to cover the British. I mean, mm. in, in popular culture, Battle of the Bulge was all about Americans and, and Germans, but, but yeah, definitely not the case. The, oh, the British were involved, uh, um, not obviously to a lesser degree, but we're definitely involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, the uh, the war wasn't just fought in um, in the summer, so be it in the really really harsh cold winters in in italy um th- throughout the uh the, the latter years of the war across the board really and uh, the, the british tommies wouldn't just be you know sat in their battle dress they'd have leather jerkins they'd have gray mm-hmm. coats they'd have scum, just like any other army right. uh, and we felt it's right the right thing to do for his majesty's forces to be equipped thus and uh yeah, that uh, that box set giving you the, the basic infantry squad uh, for mid to late war uh, It's just the start, really. Awesome. Um, as with our rangers, we want to uh, yeah add the support weapons and characters, etc. So uh, they'll be on the on the cards before too long. Fantastic. Well, as a guy who loves painting white, I am loving all of the love that you're giving uh, winter armies. Just means I get to paint more tanks, which is always a good thing. 
Well, it's not just the winter, of course. If you go flip side, uh, later this year we're uh, we're we're going Western Desert, as you as I've mentioned before. So oh, yeah. uh, we've got the the, the Western Desert um, book um, coming out with the campaign book, which will um, pretty much just cover North Africa. Uh, we wanted to really, really delve deep into into that rather than you know try and shoehorn in uh, Italy and, and and other areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that the, we'll save those for a later book. But as far as the uh, the Western Desert goes, it's not just going to be a book. We've got Plastic Eighth Army. Um, so they're away being tooled at the moment. Uh, Voitex done a great job on those, uh, looking fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that sprue doesn't just have the the British, we've also got heads in Tam O'Shanters, the Scots bonnets, mm-hmm. so you can produce your Highlanders. Uh, and we've got two different types of turbaned heads. So we, uh, we've got heads for um, your traditional Sikhs, but also for the, the Punjabi and the Muslims. So, yeah, we're covering the British Commonwealth with this set rather than um, just covering the, uh, the British as, as such. And then uh, down the line, we'll also be doing a plastic set with, uh, with Anzacs and South Africans. So awesome. guys in slouch hats for the Aussies uh, and South Africans in their traditional um, um, sun hats, the pith helmets, uh, and a few other bits and pieces as well. So we're covering the, the Western Desert in glory with, uh, with plastics, and I haven't even mentioned the Africa Corps. I was going to say, and there's more. Uh, you were mentioning yeah. something before, so let's tell us about the yeah. other side. Well, the, the Africa Corps, again, in plastic, they're away at the, uh, the toolmakers at the moment. So both of those sets will hit at the same time later this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's the one big thing um, we feel is, is missing from our, our bolt action ranges to cover the Western desert. And that's something that's so characterful, the gentleman's war. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know it's popular. So yeah, we're going after that in a big way. Um, we've just had some fantastic models um, delivered, uh, some metal um, Falsham Jaeger for, for Ramka division. Mm. So that you know, shirt, shirt, sleeves, uh, and they are absolutely glorious. Everybody who's seen those has been, has been bowled over. And uh, sculptor Matt Bickley's done an absolutely fantastic job on those. And again, that's the start of a, uh, a new range. So we'll be getting you know, more support weapons and um, HQ, et cetera, for the thousand years going forwards. So not just uh, yeah, infantry. Um, we, as, as you know, we, mm. we, we produce a lot of plastic vehicles. Uh, and what would the Western Desert be without a Matilda 2? So we're, we're doing a plastic Matilda 2. Nice. In fact, I, I spent a bunch of time this morning going over the uh, uh, the CAD for that. Mm. Uh, and before that, that should be in, in tooling very, very soon. Uh, and we're, we're aiming to make that a, a, a dual set. So you can either make the BEF version um, for, for France or a version for the desert. Cool. With the, so you can have the, the raised or lower suspension. Obviously, there are some other cosmetic um, differences, the, the anti-ditching skid on the BEF, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, uh, we're looking at supporting the, the desert with, with that. Um, and then, again, for the other side, um, something equally as iconic, our plastic 88. Ooh. So flak, the Flak 37, 8.8 centimeter gun. Um, it's it's the classic, the dreaded eighty-eight. Um, so that'll be for um, the, the German army, uh, as such. So really good throughout the war uh, for your here forces. 
and we'll so be good. we'll be coming through with uh, uh, variants on that for the likes of the Africa Core, the Falchion Jaeger, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's awesome, and I love the fact that you guys have been adding. Um, variation in your plastic kits. Uh, I I recently got myself one of the new Hetzers, and I love that it comes with not only different variations of the Hetzer model, but that actually has the AA version, which is you know has no top and has the auto cannons poking out of the top. It looks completely different from a Hetzer, but but it's that same general profile. Um, I didn't know that kit was in there until I looked, and it very clearly says on the back of the box, this kit also makes. And it's just really exciting that, you know, you get a kit and then you can make multiple tanks with it. The tanker in me all of a sudden is looking at those three packs of the tanks you're selling going, ooh, hello. I think that's exactly um, why the the, the platoon or zoo boxes, mm. the multi-boxes, um, have been so popular because you know, vast majority of our sets have multiple options. Mm. So not not only can you, you know, for instance, with the Hetzer, you, know, you pick up the uh, the Hetzer Zug box, you get three kits in there. Mm-hmm. You can build a Flampanzer, you can build a Hetzer, and you can build the, the Akak version, mm. and you can do it at a great price. Um, of course, you can do that equally as well by buying three single boxes, but, mm. uh, you know, for, you know, save a few quid and, and um, get it earlier than uh, the single boxes, why mm-hmm. wouldn't you? Exactly. So, I mean, that's uh, I think that's probably enough for bolt action. There's okay. Obviously, we've got loads, loads and loads more coming through. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one slight snippet I'd throw in is we, we've recently uh, bought a range of uh, post-war vehicles and guns. So it's, uh, it was an opportunity that we, we couldn't say no to. Mm. So um, stuff that'll be good for Korea, Vietnam, um, Six Days War, um, African Bush Wars, etc. Um, so keep keep an eye keep an eye on the newsletter because uh, we're going to be working our way through those uh, in coming months, and that, that that takes us into a whole new sphere for um, for bolt action. My wallet officially hates you. Just saying. <laughs> You mentioned Vietnam and Korea, and my eyes literally went to the size of dinner plates. And yeah, you just kept going in my wallet. Yeah, it was bad before. It's worse now. Anyway, we've been waiting for a big release for quite a while. And it's it's in, and it's already on its way out. Would you like to tell us what I'm talking about? Well, that must be Blood Red Skies, our World War II uh, air combat game. Would you say it's flying off of the shelves? No, because that'd be crass. <laughs> That's no, what I it, do. It, is, it, it, it is literally flying out. Uh, we, uh, we're we running out of pace, and we're, we're having to look at a, a reorder already. Amazing. Uh, so if anybody is wanting to get into Blood Red Skies, probably wise you, <laughs> yeah. you get down to your store or place the order quick, because uh, there is going to be a period where we're, we're out of stock on it, um, and we're, we're hurriedly trying to get more in. Um, it, it's been incredibly popular, and awesome. quite rightly too. Yeah, you when know, you've got um, yeah uh, an author like Andy Chambers behind it, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know the power of Warlord, um, making sure that everybody can get hold of it and, mm-hmm. and talking about it, and the, the plastics are great, and the game looks fantastic. Uh, it, it's easy to see why it's popular. I mean, who doesn't want air combat, fighter combat? Seriously. Well, I certainly do. Yeah. Uh, so as, as well as yeah, the game actually being out there now, um, we're, we're, that's, it's not just 
the game as you see it, where there's ongoing development. So we're mm-hmm. we're producing more plastic planes, uh, getting more artworks done. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're looking at producing metal planes. Um, we're looking at you know, twin engine fighters, bringing bombers into the mix. There's so much stuff going on. So I'd heartily recommend people keep a, uh, an eye on the uh, the Warlord newsletters. Brilliant. Um, because that, yeah, that, that's where you'll see this stuff first. And obviously, we'll as we uh, get through the podcast, we'll mention it some more. But uh, yeah, a f- fantastically popular game at the moment. Excellent. It's catching a lot of people's uh, imaginations. And I imagine a fair few people are watching uh, Reach for the Sky and the Battle mm-hmm. of Britain and all those great classic war films. That's right. Um, I've I've recently have a student in my class who's constantly talking about World War II planes. His grandfather got him hooked on it. And this is a nine-year-old Australian boy who just loves to talk aircraft. Um, and I, I've always been a tank man myself. And he and I sort of speak the common language of World War II vehicles. But it isn't until I've started reading his information reports recently that, I mean, I knew there was a lot of planes, but... It's amazing what a nine-year-old knows about, um, you know, everything having to do with a, a propeller or a jet engine in World War II. Um, and it just, it reminded me just how broad, I mean, for every tank I know on the ground, there was a, a corresponding plane in the air. It just speaks to how wide you can go. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, he sounds like a kind of nine-year-old, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Doesn't talk PlayStation, doesn't talk uh, social media, but does know how uh, how a jet engine works. Exactly. So yeah, yeah, good lad, good lad. Yeah, Hugo's a good guy. Uh, so okay, let's let's switch genres here for a second because we're talking, we're flying in the air, but as we look down, we see the 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 rolling uh, mountains and hills of of medieval Japan. And uh, what's that I see in the background? Uh, why don't you take us from there? Well, yeah, Test of Honor, another very popular game. That's it. Um, uh, and we recently released the the So High, the the Warrior Monks, which have been fantastically popular. Mm. Um, Marco, the guy who sculpted them, has done a fantastic job on them. Um, but he's uh, not rested on his laurels. That the next set we're working on are the Honor Bagatia. So I'm I'm pretty sure I've said that incorrectly, but that's what I'm going with. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so, so these are the, uh, uh, the the female samurai, effectively mm. they're defending hearth and home while the uh, the men folk are out um, uh, uh, making war on each other. Mm. Um, and again, Mock has made some fantastic models. I mean, these are glorious. Uh, anybody with a slight the slightest hint in um, in either the game or or the period um, or even the genre, really, with uh, with samurai. I, uh, are going to snap these up because the the models are absolutely stunning, yeah. and uh, Andres, uh, one of our in-house painters, is um, currently working on those. So those should be with us before very long, and uh, uh, I think people will be very very excited about what they see there. Well, I'm I'm loving all of the terrain that you guys have been doing with Sarissa and how it matches mm. up with the infantry models that you've been doing. Um, so, for example, the temple models that came out with the Sohai, and then before that, there was another um, temple model that came out with the Ninja, and now, of course, I'm assuming there'll be something coming out with the Geisha, and it, it it's just, it goes, 
beyond just having fantastic models, what you're talking about, because each pack of that not only gives you the ability to run that warband, um, but you're able to, it comes with missions to run it. And just going back to that, that element of narrative wargaming, you actually get a real feel for the warband by the games that you play with it. Um, and then you add the terrain on top. It's just, it's just the total package. It's awesome. Well, that's what we hope. I mean, the, with the so high um, and with the Onobagosha, we're introducing um, a lot more narrative there. So mm. uh, each of those has a booklet with uh, linked scenarios, um, which yeah, uh, really cover um, the, the theme of that box set. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you say, we we had the uh, the, the temple that uh, we, we put out with Sarissa for the the so high, uh, and then with the Onobagosha is a large samurai house. Uh, and then going forward with uh, with future packs, it's a a format which we'll be sticking to because it is uh, very very popular, as you say. Mm, definitely, and the models, as you say, just look great and oh, so good. Yeah, I mean, on a personal level, um, the the um, medieval Japan thing doesn't float my boat, but I'm a big fan of the models, yeah. uh, and I can I can I can see why people get into it, uh, but. I, I probably have too many other things I need to concentrate on. Yeah. Well, as I but said, yeah, the, 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 I, oh, go sorry, ahead. No, yep. no, you go ahead. No, I was just, I was just saying, yeah, that with, with the models being um, so good, I could see people who don't play Tester One I wanted to pick them up anyway because uh, yeah. um, they are glorious. Yeah, I have several friends that are doing just that. Um, they have no interest in playing a samurai game, but they look at the models and went, oh, yeah, I'm getting those. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah. And I've picked up at least, I've picked up one box of the ninja so far, but I need at least one more. Uh, and I'm just going to paint those up, but I can't just be the filthy, you know, the filthy ninja player because people will start looking down their nose and saying ninjas weren't actually around. And you go, well, I know, but ninjas, I'm an eighties kid, but I also grew up in Japan. And well, you say they yeah. didn't, they weren't around. I mean, if if ninjas were really as good as they were, people wouldn't see them. So <laughs> you know, that's true. Very true. Uh, I'm I'm definitely uh, looking very very closely at the monks. Um, I I've just been thinking I really do need something a little less black um, and a little more. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, well, I, I am definitely going to be getting in. You don't want to paint black power ranges and in multicolors. <laughs> yeah, no, not doing that. Um, look, I, I can start talking to you about painting uh, ninjas orange or red and having one white ninja lead them out of circa 1980s G.I. Joe comic books <laughs> if you like. But uh, I'm pretty sure we should move on to another topic. Let's, let's move on to another topic, a one that's... Um... Not been mentioned really on on the official Ooh. Warlord podcast, but as as you mentioned, uh, has been on uh, some of your previous mm. um, casts. Is uh, a game that um, we've been developing for for many months now. Um, it is part of the Bolt Action family in mm-hmm. the same way as Blood Red Skies is, uh, and that's a game called Cruel Seas. Oh yeah, which is the brainchild of uh, uh, John Stallard. Um, who's a, a massive fan of uh, your motorboats and uh, your, your coastal craft. So so this is a, a, a naval game with uh, motor torpedo boats, F-lighters, merchant men. And, uh, I, I won't steal John's thunder, because we, we need to get him on for a future mm. cast to talk about it in, in um, a lot more detail. 
Um, but just to say that that's something that uh, is coming along a pace at the moment and uh, uh, well, well into the production of that game. I cannot wait. And then uh, obviously, you know, once we've got the once we've got that, and then we've got Blood Red Skies, and we've got Bolt Action, you've got um, the opportunity to uh, to link those together for campaigns, which mm-hmm. is something we'll be looking at forward. So you've got the air, land, and sea. Oh, fantastic! That just that that's the total package. You know, you get the the trifecta going. The you know, oh, just can't wait to actually have those campaign days because it's great to look at the map. <laughs> Um, and to play the linked bolt action uh, games and link it together with different players and to to have that campaign play out. But of course, air uh, is such an integral part of a lot of uh, World War II ground battles that you're kind of, you know, playing around with it a little bit, um, but you're not actually getting into that depth. But with the introduction of Blood Red Skies, that's just fantastic. And especially if you're playing in an area with a coast and then get into Cruel Seas, mm. oh, that's going to be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the ships are looking fantastic. And uh, we've got Marco working on the uh, um, the planes that will be going in with, uh, with Cruel Seas too. So, mm. uh, yeah, lots and lots and lots of stuff going on there. But again, I will, uh, as we said with Rick and his fancy game, we'll uh, we'll leave the uh, the glory on that one and the mm. details for for John for a future cast. Awesome! Oh, I can't wait to hear about that. But I'm also looking very, very fondly forward to uh, the next couple of uh, months because there are so many good books coming in the next couple of. Just God, my, my again, my wallet's screaming at me. But um, I mean, do we want to talk a little bit of? Uh, Conflict Forty Seven might be coming a little uh, thick and fast. That is shortly. Yeah, absolutely. The, the guys at Clockwork Goblin have been uh, absolutely churning stuff out. Mm. Um, there's the uh, the book we're doing with Osprey, uh, Def- Conflict Forty Seven Defiance, mm-hmm. uh, which it, it introduces the Italians into the mix, uh, and in true Italian style, they they split asunder and uh, you end up with uh, one side for the Axis and one side for the Allies. Awesome. Uh, and each each of those will have a, a distinctive look. Um, uh, and the guys have um, played very much on um, traditional um, Italian tropes. So you've got um, a gladiator theme in there. You've got a Roman centurion theme. Uh, and we, we've got a lot, a lot more of that stuff coming through. Um, not just for the Italians, but for all the uh, forces that are out there at the moment. So, yeah, more Japanese, more Germans, Soviets, mm-hmm. British, Americans, uh, and uh, the, the the guys have taken the the sculpting to a new level. So the stuff that we all see coming out is going to be absolutely glorious. Uh, and I think it's probably worth get, trying to get the uh, the guys from Clockwork Goblin on the next cast if we can, uh, so that they can talk about Conflict Forty Seven, talk a lot more about Defiance and its development. And some of the uh, the really cool stuff that's coming out. I can't wait. I'm a big fan of that game, and I play it a lot. And so uh, that that that'll be next episode is going to be a bit like Christmas. <laughs> well, if you take your pills beforehand, <laughs> exactly. I'll just I'll just calm down, take a deep breath. I promise I won't get too excited, guys. I promise. Well, I hate to do this to you. I I think that may be the end of our time today, Paul. Oh, I'm gutted. I'm crushed. Oh, it just means we're going to have to do this again soon. Uh, if we must. If we must. <laughs> well, of course, this isn't the end of the episode, guys, because 
Of course, there's always a second part to this podcast. Now, in the past, we've spoken to uh, you know different people about different games. Uh, of course, Bolt Action was the first game. Uh, and then, of course, we talked to Andy about Blood Red Skies. But now, now we're going to get into one of the big Warlord games, one of the other big ones, I should say in the form of Gates of Antares. Now, joining us after the break will be Tim, uh, who will be who is sort of the grand poobah of the Gates of Antares universe and uh, really helps promote uh, the website and helps to build the fluff and the game itself. And man, there are some really rad new releases that are coming out for that game. And we are about to talk them. But before we get to that, I have to say good night, Paul. Thank you for joining us as always. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Absolutely. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll talk to you on the next cast and uh, good, good day to everybody else. Ta-da. And we're back. And this is very exciting because oftentimes when we speak with members of Warlord Games staff, um, we speak with our co-host... Paul Sawyer. Uh, But now we have the opportunity to actually speak with another member of the Warlord Games Games Development Studio. And uh, with us today, we have Tim Bancroft. Um, You might know his voice from the Freeborn Shard podcast, but now he is actually part of the development team slash uh, the studio in regards to Gates of Antares. So, Tim, welcome to the Warlord podcast. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Oh, it's great having you, man. I've listened to countless of your episodes of your podcast. Um, I have two fully painted Gates of Antares armies. I just have never had the, actually, I've never been able to get a game yet, but I'm hoping to change that shortly, uh, especially given the new book. And, mate, your podcast is great. Um, just, I'm a huge fan. Thank you very much. It's uh, also co-hosted sometimes by Justin, but he's been busy. He's also lives in Melbourne. That's right. I, weirdly, uh, I have never actually. I mean, the Melbourne's gaming scene is fairly large, but I don't think it's that large, and I don't, and I have yet to uh, run into him. So I'm looking forward to uh, one of these days, bumping elbows with the fine gent and recognizing that voice and going, "I know you." <laughs> Yes. It's uh, strange when you actually just recognize somebody from a voice and then you actually meet them and, and it's your brain gets out of sync with them for a moment. And you just think, I've got no idea who you are. And then they speak and you suddenly think, I do know you, but I don't know from where. Exactly. And it, they always, so I listen to a lot of podcasts and you speak with people. It's always weird the first couple of times, the first couple of sentences you interact with them because you're so used to listening to them and you, you have that intimacy of knowing them to a degree. Um, and then to actually be able to respond and have them speak back to you is always, I always find that really surreal. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? It's very strange. It's a strange world, especially <laughs> when you live 12,000 12, miles away and yet it's, it's next door. That's right. All right. Well, let's let's stop talking shop and or sorry, stop talking uh, social media and start talking shop. Uh, we have a very exciting new release for Gates of Antares. We have a whole new book and expansion um, that just that gives us three new army lists, tons of new fluff, um, great new rules and great new models. Um, and there's just so much to talk about. Do you want to start talking about the new big race? Because I know a lot of people have been wondering, and uh, I think the variety definitely need to be talked about. Uh, I think you're right. It's it's probably going to be a case of you stopping me because I okay. 
could just get too excited about this. I love the Virai. I love what's happened in the book. Basically, the whole book is based around the combat and fights and everything else in enclosed environments. And that includes starships as well as, say, in the innards of a mine nice. or in the innards of a vast arcology in a ruined ancient city or something like that. Brilliant. Now, in those depths are the Virai, who are this race who have been thought destroyed a long, long time ago. Their technology is basically virtually immune to the Imtel's combat nanophages, a bit like the Gar, and they just don't rely on nanospore at all, so it's very difficult for the Concord and all the advanced Antarian civilizations to actually get a handle of them. But from their perspective, they are still a living race, even though they're all drone, they're all, mechani or all mechanical, or electromechanical or technological, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. They just want to live their lives in peace and expand and grow like every other human race. Right. Except, of course, they're not human. The trouble is, is that they just tend to regard humans a little bit as, you know, sort of like pests and infestation. What are humans doing here? We were here first. What are you doing here? So whenever they come across pan-humans, they try to first ignore them. And then when the pan-humans obviously get a little bit annoyed at the presence of these drones just busying around, stripping a system of resources or whatever, the Virai respond. Over the millennia, though, the Virai have learnt that humans tend to get really quite rough, so they've developed a paranoia. So they won't trust humans, they won't ally with humans unless they absolutely have to, and even if they do ally, they don't sort of like extend a nice arm or whatever, they'll just sort of like keep prodding the humans away. So there's something a bit strange, a bit different from all the core races that we have already, if you like. Yeah, which were in and of themselves different to start with. So it's just another example of Antares having just being a rich scientific or sorry, science fiction tapestry um, that this is just another uh, panel just sewn in, so to speak, um, which is really yeah, exciting. It is. Ah, absolutely. You're quite right. It's we try and make it as well, fairly reasonable, solid. You know, I, I like to call it um, so science, space science. <laughs> Mm. opera or science science opera if you see what i mean or hard space opera is the best way i've come up with saying it so try and base it on some form of reality and that's right. what the virai's motivations and backgrounds all about so effectively if you've got this drone race which is coldly logical coldly logical mm. it's got a very hierarchical structure so you've got these first instances who command a hive and they effectively give their orders to a whole bunch of secondary in instances mm -hmm. and they organize all a whole bunch of tertiary instances and then beneath them you've got all the actual drones themselves but the drone that hierarchy continues it is quite strict throughout every single hive so those top ones those three levels of the first instance the secondary the tertiaries they are architectures mm. and that's what you know, they're architects, they can design things, they can manufacture things and everything else, or they control the manufacturer. They're, they're the directors. And they, being quite practical, they've just developed, they've said, well, we need some warriors sometimes to defend ourselves from these mm. 
pesky biological things which keep infesting our minds and our spaceships and our buildings. And of course, we always need workers. But being rather pragmatic, and again, this is one of the key bits of the fluff behind the Virai, they are very pragmatic. Mm. They have dual functionality for both their sets of, for all their drones. So a warrior may be a warrior, but actually it's just as useful as a heavy lifter at a coal face, for example. Right. Or, or in a mine. And whilst a constructor or a scavenger or a mining drone, these are all different types of worker drones, are just geared towards building stuff. They don't mind using their tools, their cutters, their their chainsaws or mm. anything else they've got. By chainsaws, I mean small, useful chainsaws. Right. Um, not these huge, great, you know, tree-lopping chainsaws. Yeah, exactly. They use cutters, fusion cutters for that. Or their tool appendages or... Or even, you know, the tractor moles, their mining equipment in hand-to-hand combat. Nice. Now, when you, you talk of instances, um, for those not familiar who haven't been looking at the gatesofantares.com at the Nexus, um, so the, the, the first instance is what you would call the uh, sort of the command squad of um, that particular army or that particular force. They're sort of, it's the not the hive mind, but sort of the big brain behind the operations. Am I understanding the fluff that I read? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're quite right. It's, it's not quite like insects. So you don't have the queen and everything's dedicated to the queen. If you see what I mean, definitely it's, but it's a, but that's a useful, if you like picture to hang things onto Mm. the first instance is the key core intelligence of the hide. It's, runs everything based on its own memories and based on the accumulated experience it's overlaid onto those memories. And it then directs everything else. But effectively, all the secondary instances are autonomous. They're just given loose commands like you would do in a a major corporation, you know, or even on a a normal battlefield. You know, Brigadier is not interested in every single movement of all the regiments underneath him. And the regimental commanders aren't interested in the squad level, the squad's tactics were at the bottom end right uh, they they've got a fair amount of intelligence they're really quite uh, free to act mm-hmm. as they want but it's all under this single controlling mind of the, the first instance he sets the plan or she sets the plan or it sets the plan i don't know who it is mm-hmm. um it doesn't have, really have a gender i suppose and the others just try and operate around to fulfil it. The only difference is between them and humans, for example, they don't have, if you like, individual motivations. They won't suddenly think, no, I've got, I don't fancy doing that today. I want a holiday or something. Right. Yeah, and just the way the model, I mean, looks in particular, it is very different from uh, what we've seen in the past for Mentares. And it's just a really exciting dynamic I mean, there's there's tentacles, there's little grabber arms, um, there's looks like cannons coming out of the front. Um, I'm I'm not entirely sure of what it all does, but looking at the model, it is again, it, it's like the gar in that regard. It doesn't look like anything else I've seen on a tabletop, and that's really exciting. Um, it, yeah, it's just cool, and I'm wondering how that will tie, for example, with the second and third instances. Are they more, um, as you're talking about sort of the delegation of responsibility on the battlefield, are we going to see you know, smaller, more simplistic versions of maybe this wonderful first instance model and bodyguards that you guys leaked on the Nexus, the pictures of, I should say? 
Yeah, the well, we've actually, it's not just leaked now, we actually have a full article on the Virai First Instance, Brilliant. which is on the Nexus, and all you've got to go to is gatesofantares.com, and from that front page, or you could put in a search for Virai, and you'll see an article which says Virai First Instance. The First Instance itself is probably the most intricate of all the models, uh, of all the leader models, the architecture models. Mm-hmm. But the others, the studio designers are, are fantastic. They say, oh, yeah, the others aren't quite as involved. But frankly, you look at them and they are still amazing models. They've still got those floor tentacles, which they've got to use or mm-hmm. to land on. They've still got the side arms, the manipulators. They've still got a fusion cutter or whatever coming out the front. Uh, so they're still quite tough little beasties. Nice. But what you've mentioned about them being different is something I absolutely love. I mean, uh, the aesthetic which the studio came up with for the whole of the Virai was lovely. And it's worth remembering that this is just the main model. So, for example, this is if the Virai has got free range and can find all the resources they like, this is the sort of things they'll produce. So, in other words, the models which we've got in the first load coming out. Yeah, It could be that in the future... We come out with others. I don't know, and I, and I wouldn't want to <laughs> set that in stone at all. But the aesthetic, this core aesthetic, is so sinister. It's sort of a mix of in, insect. It's sort of got praying mantis-like features on it. It really does. It's coldly harsh in those mm. lines, those angular lines. And when you put it on the table, it actually looks really quite nasty. It looks quite mm. hostile. Yeah, the angu- I think you nailed it when you said those harsh angles. I mean, it, it almost has gem-like sharp corners to it. Um, if you haven't seen these guys, you should really go to the website and check it out. Um, and it, but that said, it's got that, because it's got the tentacles that it, it moves around on, um, almost, they almost look like miniature snake tails that it's, it's manipulating. But it's that it's it, it's got that organic feel, but at the same time, it's technological. It, it's just a really nice aesthetic that really gives the the race a unique character that I really enjoy the look of. I do too, and I was so excited to see them during development as they came round and optimized them and said, "What about this? You know, how's this going and everything else?" Uh, it it's it's just wonderful. It it is the best. Well, I would say it, of course, but I think it's the best sort of drones I've actually seen. And I've long been a fan of Star Wars droids and the huge mm-hmm. number of varieties of droids you get in Star Wars. But these are just so sinister looking, that angularity, that cross, as you said, between a sort of a flesh like organic thing, which isn't organic at all. You know, right. it's the Asurians in the Antarian background are organics overlaid on top of uh if you like a a machine or an artificial substrate whereas these are just an intelligence which vaguely looks organic because that's the useful way they've built it into being if you see what i mean definitely sort of smacks of convergent evolution but in machine form Mm. And I think the miniature, so looking at the cover of the new book that's coming out, uh, The Drone Scourge Returns, it is literally the Isaurians versus um, the Varai, and you're looking at these model, and you see the, the artistic ren- you know, renderings of the models that I was just talking about a minute ago, and just to see them um, 
you know, the artistic, the way that they move, I think has been captured really well in the miniature as well. And it just, yeah, it, it's very exciting. So I'm getting, I'm getting a sense though that the warriors in this um, are almost a swarm. Um, or am I inferring too much from what I've read and the pic and the cover of the book? It's depends really i mean we're, okay. we're moving now if you like down a level if you like into mm. how they move and what they do the weapons and everything else the warrior swarm you could call it a swarm but it's more actually the constructors the workers who are a who are a swarm okay the the warriors there's fewer warriors so every army has to have a controlling intelligence and every army has to have uh, some constructors in it of some kind or some workers, mm -hmm. and then you can have warrior drones on top of it. Frankly, being war gamers, I can imagine every war gamer having some warrior drones because they're really quite pokey. Nice. Yeah, this is a machine intelligence which has said, "Okay, guys, uh, we need <laughs> we need to go to war. Let's just build something sensible that goes to war, and then we can use in the mines as necessary." So the whole aspect is yeah we'll shove loads of constructors because we'll always have constructors around and you can have quite large constructor squads and they'll be supplemented by these few squads of assault drones mm -hmm. or warrior or other warrior drones defender drones now the main difference between them is that you'll find that you know a squad of maybe five or six defender drones or assault drones will be quite tough they'll have in Antarian terms, they'll have really good strength. They've got good res for a foot soldier. Mm -hmm. Their command and initiative, though, is quite low. That's because they rely on the presence of the command elements, the architectures, who are, you know, the different levels of architectures are, after all, the brains of the hive. Oh, against I, that, I though, really like that. It, I, I like that dynamic because it means, um, again, it, they play differently from other armies, but it really does set that character for the race, doesn't it? It does, and you'll find that every time you face a very army, you'll have loads of command units. Not loads, but you know, quite a yeah. few command units because they're so needed. But they're also needed to supplement and restore this swarm as you call it, and I'm quite happy with the term, mm. it's this swarm of constructors because you'll find it's going to be easier to run with larger constructor squads because they're, they're fairly agile, but they're actually fairly weak. They're not particularly strong. They're tough. They're all machine. But all they've actually got to fight with are these tools, these tool appendages, this fusion cutter, so whilst they've got loads of these arms, as you pointed out earlier, mm. they can't do much with them. So all you've got to do as a as, as a Virai commander, you've just got to throw lots of them at opponents and hope that some of these worker drones get through. Some of them are a bit different, though. Some of the workers have actually armed with effectively what's tractor mauls. So they dig into tool faces, uh, sorry, dig into concrete, mm -hmm. dig into mine faces or anything else with these tools and everything collapses down like the same uh, like boromites do okay. so they're a bit different as well and you've also got some scavenger drones which have got slightly different tools so within this whole gut of constructor drones you've got different subtypes if you like depending on what tools they've been given on that particular day nice well that gives you nice differentiation within the force as well 
Yeah, um, there's still some weapon drones, just like in a Concorde or mm-hmm. Isaurian Drone Force, which is great, and they're armed with, uh, you know, more potent weapons. Mm-hmm. But these weapons, which they're armed with, can actually be used as heavy-duty, really heavy-duty mining equipment. So there's a fusion flamer, for example, which is what the normal warriors are armed with. But in typical logical fashion, the Virais thought, well... What can we do? We need a more powerful weapon. We need a more powerful mining tool. Let's stick four of these together. <laughs> right. So they've, yeah. <laughs> so, they've got a, so they make a flamer array. So that's a, a much bigger, bigger just collection of flamers, of fusion flamers altogether. So and that's just a fusion weapon which just spits out um, superheated. Uh, <laughs> oh, gas! I suppose is the best way you could you could say it. But it's. Um, the effluence is just really quite nasty. And that's what's used as a weapon. They also scavenge things as well. So they use um, mag cannons that they've picked up from somewhere. They'll use maglites and ports they've picked up. And of course, they have a grasp of the quintessential mining equipment in Antarian space, which is this whole fractal technology or this frag borer technology. So they build their own and use their own frag borers, but they'll also grab any frag borer they can. Nice. All right. Well, yeah, That's that also gives you, again, a different uh, take on how things play in the game. Yeah, it is. Um, yes, you can use the you know, mag weapons or whatever, but there's a slight cost difference in the mag weapons than there is in their own native weapons mm-hmm. but the fractal weapons themselves have actually uh, they're, they're one of the modifications if you like in drone scourge because one of the things about drone scourge is it's all to do with you know being in buildings and mm. mines and starships and one of the things you're going to need to do all the time is breaching and breaching is a core aspect of the rules there. So that all the weapons, almost all the weapons and equipment that the Virai have are breaching. So they can just break through walls and doors uh, or knock down buildings much, much easier than most of the other kits you see in Antares. Now, I know that there's other races covered in this book as well. Do other races then get um, access to additional weapons that Hey, help them to breach, or are the weapons that are currently out there? Does that is that covered in there as well? So everyone can sort of get in on this this um, claustrophobic uh, combat that the book introduces. Really good question, and the answer is both. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> which, which is which is uh, effectively, you're, I think you're, what you're doing is reflecting. I think what a lot of players will be interested in, and right at the core. The book comes up with a list of weapons which inherit this breaching trait. So you'll find most of them are really quite obvious. So for the tractor mauls, right. which the Boromites use for mining, they have to be breaching. You know, they're used for tearing apart hunks of rock. There's a number of other weapons which inherit the breaching trait. So some of the grenades are automatically uh, breaching and most of those of course mm-hmm. are what the Boromites use but there's other weapons as well which which are breaching the more potent ones so for example the guard disruptor bombs mm-hmm. are breaching which is reasonable but they tear apart humanity right. all the fractal weapons and frag weapons are also automatically breaching so that means almost every single 
uh, faction can actually have access to a breaching weapon right from the get-go. Things like lances are also breaching as well. Plasma lances, this really focused uh, fire mode from the plasma lances are also breaching, so that's great. But some of the other factions have got access to this tuned version of the frag borers called a fractal demolition and breaching cannon, or for short, a fractal DBC. And effectively what that means is it's, it's a quicker ramp up from its strike value, its penetration uh, value, and it ramps up really quite quickly. So it can be quite a little bit more potent than normal frag borers or fractal cannons, but at the cost of range because, you know, it's geared up towards demolitions. That makes sense. There's also, yep, yeah, <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> the uh, other thing is you've got some weapons which are specific for, say, the Isaurians. So there's a phase shift projector, which makes use of the Isaurian's phase shift technology so that it projects, it can attack a building and temporarily just phase out a portion of that building. But at the same time, uh, a squad of Isaurian troopers can run through that because they've got phase armor. So they can just run into the building, if you like, through the hole that the phase shift projector has just temporarily made in the wall. That's awesome. So yeah, what I, so I, that's great because it means that um, you're not just inventing maybe three new weapons and just sort of dumping it on all the races at once. It's differentiating out um, so that each race has the, the breaching equipment that actually matches them and their character and um, the, the nature of their technology. We're trying to do that indeed without adding, you know, loads and loads and loads new of new weapons, which... I think just gets a little bit too confusing and problematic in the long run. Agreed. What we've also got, in addition to all these hordes or swarms of constructors and the warriors, we've got star probes. Now, they are just probes which the Virai have decided that they actually really do need, and they're mm. about the only specialised combat uh, machines in the whole army. STAR stands for Shared Target Acquisition Algorithms. Nice. So, and these scout probes, if you like, feed into those algorithms. Effectively, they're a bit like, they're, they're just like probes everywhere else, but they are, have the same target acquisition, for example, as the sensor dome on the Concorde's transport oh, sensor nice. dome. So effectively, they shoot at something. If they hit it, they put a marker on it, if you like. They mm -hmm. they say, hey, I've pinned you. Uh, or rather, I shouldn't say pin, because that's going to be confusing. Right. Uh, they tag you. They tag you, you know, yeah. a bit like laser tag. Uh, they tag you, and you can have a number of tags on the target, and that increases the chances of a Virai actually shooting at it. Oh, nice. So they're really really useful little beasts mm. and they're slightly smaller than the rest but they've still got exactly the same uh, aesthetic as the rest of the swarm you can see where they've come from but all of this adds up to a very different feel of the army on the table the architectures which i've mentioned are all mod 2 and you can see or can already hear people saying, what, mod two command units? No. Mm -hmm. But actually, because of the way the force is structured, you really need these command units to be mod two. They can use their 
second dice, or actually on either dice, though typically it's only just the second dice, to actually reprogram other virai around them. So they've got a couple of functions they can do so that virai around them who are suffering or who've really moved can do something else, for example, or can recover pins or something like that. Nice. So they can reprogram. And they've also got with them uh, a repair swarm. Now, this is absolutely vital because the only leaders in the whole of the virai are the command elements. So you don't have that leader reroll on a squad. And that can make them very vulnerable. That makes but sense. But what happens yeah. is, yeah, which is sounds it's horribly logical when you go through this. Yeah. <laughs> You're thinking, you can't do this. You can't put this on. You know, as we don't have these advanced, super experienced leaders. These are just drones. The only, ex the only leaders are these are the, are the architectors. Mm. So within range of architectors, if you like, these squads can inherit the leader trait so they can re-roll misses, which makes them very tough. But it really emphasizes the dependency of a virai army on their leader cohorts and i can see whilst they can function without them and they can have won games without having a command element left on the table they really need the command elements so that's that's a really different feel to them when you're actually playing a game yeah, it, it's almost as though you need to have you need to play almost conservatively with those um, those command elements because if you lose them, as you say, you can win. But it sounds like you you at that point you'd be pushing mud uphill trying to uh, succeed, and it would just make I, and and that represents what the army would actually be like in the battlefield had they lost, um, you know, the the, the architects. Absolutely. If, if if they'd lost the architectures, they would start so, to yeah. struggle. They'd start to slow down. The other thing is, is that the normal drones don't have much initiative. If you see, if you see what I mean, they, I you know, the reaction stat. So they really depend on the command elements to actually react to a situation. But again, it's horribly coldly logical and just develops from the whole feel of the army. It's not as bad, I have to say, whilst I've said, you know, they really do need the command element elements, it's not as bad as saying you shoot up all the command elements, you're automatically going to win the game. And I have to stress that you can win without them. But it's, it's a bit like tying a hand behind your back if you don't have a couple of these command elements in your arm. Right. So it does, it ties in then that you would need to really think about that if you're a variety player. Um, at, both yeah. in the army design phase, but then actually when you're playing it, um, as I was getting at earlier, you probably need to be a little more conservative, maybe those elements in your force, um, just to make sure that you are able to maintain them throughout the game. Absolutely. Every single command element can have a number of bodyguards with them, whether mm -hmm. it's whether it, that's a weapon drone for the primary, for the first or the secondary instances, mm -hmm. whether it's bodyguards, again, for the primary or secondary instances, or whether it's just constructors. Um, we happen to be around the tertiary instances, the tertiary supervisors, the mining supervisors, you know, all those third rate architectures. So they are protected as well. So it's not just a case of targeting a single individual. Now that's, as you say, that really does tie in with that whole giving the army a very distinct personality. 
um, that each one of the races in Antares has. But in this case, I mean, it, it, you, the way you're describing it and systematically you started by talking about the fluff, introducing the race to us, but then actually backing it up. It seems like every single time you go back to that, you talk about a rule, it ties directly back to the fluff and the character, ties directly back, tries directly back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something uh, Rick really wants to push, if you like. So mm. there's a, there's a core fluff. There's a there's a core fiction or narrative. Mm. I mean, Rick likes the word narrative. There's a core narrative about uh, the faction, which is then developed and put into place using the rules altering the rules as little as possible mm -hmm. uh, as you can. I mean, the, the GAR are the notable exception to that, but then the GAR are notable exceptions to everything, I think. Yeah. But the whole idea is that you use the, use the fluff to justify the army, and that's the same in the makeup of the Concord. It's the, the same in the makeup of the Freeborn, the Algorin, mm -hmm. you know, and the Boromites. And obviously, we, we just carried it forward into the Virai. So there's plenty of feel and character to the army. I love it. I have to say that I love it. Um, and it may sound a bit trite, someone from the studio saying, I love it about the new book. But I've got a horrible feeling this is going to be my new favourite army, uh, even above the, the Gar, who I've been, is my, has been my favourite army for a long time. And I can see that my staff discount being used rather excessively here <laughs> right on yeah i know i've heard how much you enjoy and just adore your your gar um from you know from a from a narrative standpoint and from a gameplay standpoint to hear you say that you like these guys more that's saying something significant it it is i was surprised i mean but i just i just love them they're just so different the aesthetic's really good they're really easy to paint up as well i was looking at the models i was terrified because i've, I've got a a neurological problem so that I can't hold a paintbrush very well nowadays mm. and I was really terrified so, but I had tried out these this sample pack and the first contact sample pack and I was really surprised at how quickly and easily they came up looking really quite smart nice. and I can see a whole load of really nice images but you were talking about the fiction as well behind it I mean yes I love the fiction but it's worth I think you wanted to talk about the I do. Open Signal and Dimensional Gates. I do. Um, so we have uh, one of the criticisms that I've heard uh, people level at Gates is, I mean, when the, it was sold as, uh, as the Kickstarter, it was sold as this new universe and um, a new game system. And people got bought in, people were playing it, people were loving it. Um, but I think some people were expecting, um, I mean, Rick Priestley, of course, was... Uh, fundamental in creating what we know now as the Warhammer 40,000 universe, which is this massive, deep, um, I mean, you can swim in that fluff for years and not get to the other end of it. Um, but that doesn't happen overnight. I mean, that, that took 20, 30 odd years um, to develop. Um, and so, yeah, which, absolutely. And that's, that's a big slope to go up. Oh, it's brutal. Yeah. And people's expectations were incredibly high. Um, as, but it, I mean, it would have been really easy for Rick just to turn around and do another game that was grim, dark, and do something like that. But as you were saying earlier, um, Gates is Gates of Antares is a very um, sort of a positive um, science-based uh, science fiction game um, that is really unlike a lot of other games out there. In fact, I'm I'm hard pressed to think of anything that it is like. 
Um, and though, the, and I do have the Gates books and I love reading them, um, I, I, you know, you always ask, well, what's behind, what's over the next hill? What's happening over there? What are these characters actually thinking? And you, you always kind of want more. And now we're getting it. Um, and so th- uh, through Winged Hussar, we're actually getting, um, and through Warlord, of course, we're getting, uh, so there's two short story books, Open Signals, um, and of course, oh, God. Dimensional Gates. Thank you. I was, I had it right, That's I had right, it literally right. in front of me, and I was like, wait, <laughs> there it is. Um, and uh yeah, so we're getting short stories. Um, and short stories are a wonderful way to start because you actually get in um, and you're able to see many different characters from many different perspectives in many different situations. Um, and I've started to read those, and it's just, it's just great. Um, and I, it's, just, it's wonderful that we're getting that, that additional fluff. And um, maybe you can tell us a bit more because there is going to be an Antares novel coming up, a full-blown story, not just short stories to give us snippets, but sort of rather than just little appetizers, but a full meal of that narrative um, that we can devour to just give us that bigger view of the universe. Yeah, people forget uh, and it's really easy to forget uh, that Antares, the Nexus is huge. And by that, I mean the Antares star, you know, mm. the game is huge. It, it's with, there's something like five and a half million star systems around its surface already. And it's fluctuating. There's more being created all the time. And at the moment, there's some being destroyed because of the disaster of Xylos. Mm. So there's room for an awful lot of different things to happen. Now, On the Nexus and in Fluff and for the players, we've got this personal shards idea where they can create their own and we just say, look, this is personal shards. But it also leaves a massive scope for fiction around the place, Mm. such as the new books coming out, which I think is Mark Barber's Markov's Prize, if I remember rightly. That is correct. Yeah, and there's another couple of books already stacked up behind that as well. Obviously, I... I produce a lot of fiction around the game, which is published by Warlord, which is targeted at the um, the individual supplements coming out. So mm. it's all to do with Battle and Crisis, the last one. The current fiction is about uh, Shaltok. It's about the TOR on which the Virai are first encountered, and it leads into that. But that's all focused on the supplements. And I think right. that the fiction as a whole actually helps expand the universe beyond that. And there's some lovely stories in Dimensional Gates. Uh, I think we reviewed it or went through every single story mm. on um, one of the Freeborn Shard episodes. But, but there are some really nice stories which actually start introducing some scheming between the Freeborn. It starts showing the coherency of the uh, Concord and the Isaurians as a whole. Uh, and I'm I really love seeing more fiction come up. We've been sent some in by uh, players for publishing on the uh, Nexus as well. Mm. They're they're just short stories. But it really fires people's imaginations, I think. It's fantastic. I mean, I spend a lot of time podcasting about games, typically about um, bolt action. And a large chunk of the conversations that I have with players is... Um, okay, what is your force themed around? Let's talk about the research that happened for that force and that battle. And you really get the feeling of the people who were actually involved. Um, and 
for a game like Gates, where you are creating universe from scratch, now given Gates has been out for a couple of years, you definitely, uh, it takes a little more effort. Um, you actually need to consider these things. Um, and for some players, like for like myself, who've been sort of in that, that bolt action mentality for such a long time, going to a place, and as you say, the freedom to create is, it's immense. But I'm I I my I sort of haven't been using some of those muscles in my brain for a while, and and to have the stories to help ground, to give the universe um, its almost its rules um, and its norms that I would then go oh okay this makes sense um, I would do this um, with you know with this race or with my army um, so I have this beautifully painted Concord army and a beautifully painted Gar army and I look at the Concord army and I feel like I don't know the guys in the helmets as well as I should and so I feel like reading that fluff will really help me get to know my own toy soldiers, which in turn will help me then motivate me to go, oh, do you know what this force needs? Uh, you know, I need more bikes because I think that having that will make sense in this context, if that makes sense. It really does. I mean, that's one of the things that keeps on cropping up time and time again, is that a lot of players in the Antarian universe with mm. their forces are narrative focused. And it's by that I don't mean it's just narrative scenarios and Antares is really well focused towards mm. narrative Absolutely. scenarios, which is why we're having this sort of like faction league on the Antares Day in May. Mm. But it's but every single force you you find really starts building up this narrative behind it. People start developing their own leaders. Mm -hmm. And fr frankly, I've done it myself. And it's they, they're being pulled into the core universe. So I had Shaltok with my Gar mm -hmm. as, as this rather warped character. And he's come into a book. We had Batu in the last book, which is, again, one of my freeborn leaders. He's become a bit of a rogue now. I don't think I can, <laughs> I can write any more stories about him because he's he's um, he's just too far out there now. Mm. But the the same happens with the Concord. You know, you've got Jigalas, you've got mm -hmm. some other players bringing up characters who are coming in. So you've got... Uh, Vados Gagathax is a freeborn thing with Lee Davidson's um, freeborn army. You've got Adam Merton's written a few stuff, and he won our scenario competition last year. And we're pulling his Vados Cadix into the universe, if you saw what I mean. Mm -hmm. So all of these are just things which players have latched onto as part of the narrative and said, no, I want to do this with my army. This is what it inspires me to do. And they get a real boost out of the games just by having that narrative there. Absolutely. I, I could not have said that better myself. And I mean, as gamers, we love to, to know what we're doing. Um, it, it goes beyond, as you say, going beyond the narrative scenarios of which Gates does a wonderful job with. It goes beyond painting the beautiful models again, what Gates strengths are. Um, and it just, and so in a way, um, Warlord, you guys are just, um, in Winged Husser, the way you guys are getting together, you're just fleshing out the, even more um, more of a universe that people can just sink their teeth into, which is just fantastic. Um, and while you're at it, um, as you were saying earlier with the supplements that are coming out, you're not only expanding the narrative of the game, uh, you're actually introducing um, new army lists um, and new ways to play existing armies or creating new armies entirely, like the Varai, for example. But um, the new book, 
I believe has more than just that army list. Why don't you tell us about that? The Drone Scourge has, yeah, it's got the Virai army list, obviously. I've mentioned mm -hmm. the privateers. Now, these are real hodgepodge. They're basically just a group of people who come together who normally do work or privateer works. They mm -hmm. sign a letter of mark with a freeborn house or with a frontier or unassigned world or something. Mm -hmm. Or they may even do a little bit of freebooting um, themselves and claim that it's legal. So we just happened to find this ship. It was drifting in space. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, but you fired on it and destroyed its engines. No, it wasn't us. Yeah, someone else. We just happened to come on. That's somebody else, yeah. And that's made up of a combination of the rogues, those Boromites, and, of course, the less than, um, should we say, scrupulous Freeborn. Mm. Uh, but it also can include other things in it. So it's a really odd, really interesting list. And the Gar Exiles, who, a little bit like Gar, they are resource-constrained. They are sort of in the middle of Gar and the Gar Rebels, though. So they don't want to use Gar Rebel stuff. They only want to use Gar Empire stuff. So they're trying to adapt what they can. So they're not a horde army. They do have a real mix of Gar equipment. Mm. Um, but they're a smaller army. And that's, that's just, again, a slightly different way of envisaging the Gar. But the book, apart from those three as well, and the weapons and armor and equipment we've mentioned mm. earlier, also... That has a number of other things in it. Of course, it's got six scenarios and a mm -hmm. narrative campaign, which is sort of the, how the format of these is developed. Mm. But it's also got a few suggestions on how to run your own mini campaign by mixing and matching these scenarios up. Well, that sounds fantastic. I mean, it really... I mean, I know how the narrative structure has been laid out in books previously, but to, to give people um, even more tools to get in and play games um, linked in a campaign, um, maybe with their own spin on it, um, but done in a way that is um, done within the game so they're not necessarily going off on their own, that's awesome. Yeah, it's just little campaign threads. So you make your own thread through the narratives. Um, there's just a few suggestions and obviously players can build on them, mm. but it would be, they're just a few suggestions, but they do enable you to just switch it around, perhaps put some conditions on how you translate or transfer from one scenario to another. It's just a way of making the narrative scenarios or the scenarios in the book and others customizable to your own environment, what you want to do, if you see what I mean. There's a whole bunch of other rules, though, in the book. And again, I'm, I'm just my speech is just speeding up because I love it. Nice. There's uh, rules rules for fighting in enclosed spaces, which is really quite important in this sort of thing. Uh, you know what you do about uh, corridors, different widths of corridors, who can fit down them, that sort of thing. There's also go into a, a few things about ship defences, like um, turret drones or perhaps trapped corridors. Mm. There's things about the environment, so zero G and null G, um, empty, you know, just the, the complete lack of um, air, pure vac vacuum. Mm -hmm. I stumbled over that for some reason. Don't know why. That's all right. uh, and th and that continues the stuff in from Crisis, if you so. I mean, yeah, the, absolutely, the same sort of thing. Yeah, there's um, there's uh, a few additional things about uh, some dangerous flora and fauna which you can mm. add in, and, and basically it's it's 
everything I could actually think of that would be most useful in running in these enclosed environments inside ships and stuff. Mm-hmm. One of the big issues, though, is that we couldn't include everything. So I'm sure there'll be things players will want to add in themselves, and that's fine. But we just couldn't go through uh, and Im- implement everything that really wanted to because it just gets too detailed and mm. it, perhaps you know, as soon as you get to that level perhaps it's better left for a very very small scale light skirmish game mm. uh, you know like a role-playing game mm-hmm. um, really rather than uh, a war game like Antares definitely uh, what else can I say yes oh of course there is the characters there are f- Four new characters we've got here. Nice. Um, one of them's not really a mm, character so much as just an example of a first instance. So we've got uh, Sheltuk himself, who's commander of the City of Exile. He's mm-hmm. the Exile's commander, who we've seen before. We've got uh, Admiral Taras Kalamon. I've seen the figure that the studio produced for Taras Kalamon, and he is fantastic. He's this privateer admiral, opportunistic. He is rather pompous so he's got if you like a work uniform uh, and he's put stuck a couple of admiral's epaulets on it oh. just to say nice <laughs> just to say, it's just a lovely little model great and he's got a boromite bodyguard and mm-hmm. a human bodyguard as well so it's lovely and then there is a new intelligence mandarin jai Galeus, and she's got some pan-human bodyguard with her fantastic so that the the vies there's other things in there there's the crats who are concord close assault troops you know absolutely vital in the close confines of uh, an orbital or a or an arcology mm-hmm. uh, and it just continues that whole theme of trying to actually make everything if you like tailored and individual to the actual factions yeah and making the factions fit the environments that you have um, detailed in this book, because clearly up until this point, you've you've sort of covered the wider world. And by narrowing the scope so much, armies like the Concord, for example, would probably need a unit like that um, in that environment. Absolutely. There's one way you could say they could send drones down. But, you know, for the, yeah. for the Concord and for the Isaurians, a drone intelligence, a drone machine intelligence is just as important as a human intelligence. Mm-hmm. So... It's a, it's a case of let's use drones for the things they're really good at mm-hmm. and let's use pan-humans for the roles that they're really good at. Or in the case of the Arsurans, of course, the Sanra. The Sanra assault troops are exactly. a very nasty little uh, beasties indeed. Yeah, and in the tabletop, they seem to be a little bigger than those little beasties as well. Uh, yeah, perhaps they are a little bit. Yeah, they're, mm-hmm. they're great models as well, but they uh, they can cause havoc. Yeah. So so that's about it, really. The, I could just go on because it's it would just be drilling down into all the details. All I can say is get the book up. Yeah, it's really good fun. Absolutely. Really and having read a number of those books in the past, you guys do such a good job, as I said, of of expanding the universe, but in a way that um, ties and tailors to those narrative games um, and really gives you the tools to play in those environments. And this seems like just a really 
I mean, for those of you who are into science fiction in um, you know its purest forms, or you know science fiction cinema, and they love that that you know the the closed you know the 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 tight gang gangways um, and you know um, the hallways of the spaceship, exactly claustrophobic. This sounds perfect for that. That's what we were trying to do. It has been a case, as I said earlier, though, of cutting stuff out. Mm. I have to say, though, I mean, this is based on, as I said, the TOR 563, and it's based on the planet Tascar. So, but you can run the scenarios in both. But I've seen some of the artwork which the studios commissioned and which the studios producing for this, and some of it's really lovely. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, you can see part of one of the pictures on the stories on the nexus mm. but that actual picture itself once you see it in full i mean it will be in the book mm-hmm. you actually start getting an idea of the scale of what we're talking about these giant ships that could exist in antares they're not all of them are that big you know some mm-hmm. of them are only a couple of hundred meters long but these you can actually get some really huge starships going through the antarian nexus uh, gates that's fantastic. And that really just ties in with that idea that, it, I mean, it, it really, the universe does really stretch with your imagination with this game. Um, and that's something that a lot of games just, you can't do that. Um, and that is one of the, the real selling points. Um, you know, we were talking about needing that, that narrative to help, you know, expand people's consciousness about the game. But if you are a creative person, if you are already out there thinking, I really want to do this thing. Um, this is a game system that will support you in doing that. Oh, absolutely. Um, apart from the fact we're pulling in players' ideas and characters and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. And obviously, I was the first before I joined Warlord. We're also trying to do that and support it on the Nexus with personal shards. So only this morning, somebody sent me in a huge uh, story about the narrative campaign he ran online. That was Geordie Irvin, um, Australian as well. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. And he, brilliant, yeah, this is, Australians are featuring quite a lot here. That's what we do. He ran a a campaign and he then wrote it up and he gave me the results and I've just posted that online. I'm just going through it now to add in some of the photos that people took of the games. Um, Another one I got last night was a personal shard about details of somebody's Concord shard and... He's sent in some pictures and some photos of his models, which he's actually done as well. And he's got a really nice little background. It's you know fairly solid as to the reasons why, but it's very different. And as you said earlier, none of it's grimdark, none of it's mm-hmm. copying the, the classic um, science fiction cliches almost. Uh, and a lot of it is positive. Some of it is strange. Yep. But there's a reason for everything, I think, and that's what makes Centauri's different. Agreed. Uh, now, I think our time is sadly coming to a close, but um, it, one of the exciting things, as you are sort of alluding to, is just how involved um, the Warlord Studio is with communicating with fans of this game. Um, sometimes people complain about game companies um, not listening to them or not um, giving them what they want or... Um, you know, not allowing players to contribute. But this is an example of a game system and a company where the company is really going out, out of its way to engage with its community. Um, so if someone has been playing, if someone has things, ideas, or stories, um, or just something they would like to contribute to you, how can they find you? 
Well, you can do it on Facebook, of course, because we're on the Antares Intel page. It's mm -hmm. just called Beyond the Gates of Antares, open brackets, Intel. Or send the idea or a completed article with the photos to me at Antares at warlordgames.com. Amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Tim. It has been a pleasure talking to you um, and actually being able to interact with you. It, it's it, at times I feel like I was jumping in to uh, to say something only because I'm so used to hearing you, and then to actually have you be able to talk back was just fantastic today. <laughs> I'm sorry if I spoke too much and too fast and too quickly. I'm just really quite, quite excited about this. It's it's a lovely. It, I'm just really love the Vera. I really love how it's gone. It's great stuff. Awesome. And thank you very much for having me on. Anytime, anytime. Seriously, uh, it would be great to have you on again soon to talk about uh, Antares. Um, it's just such a rich game and a rich world, and uh, there's so much to talk about. Um, clearly, you're excited about it because it's great. Um, so, and, I, and that enthusiasm that you're sharing with us, um, just, you know, it's, it's great to hear someone so passionate about it. Um, and it's really firing the, uh, the old light um, under, I don't know, under under my grill to get me uh to get me to get my models on the table i guess is what i'm trying to say anyway uh, it is it is a late melbourne but sorry go ahead as soon as you can yeah, All right, right. Then. thanks brad have a good night sir um thank you uh, ladies and gentlemen thank you again for listening to the warlord podcast uh my name is brad i'm signing off uh, but if you would like to contact me uh and give us feedback about the show uh, warlord always shares the episode through their facebook page um if you can find the episode link on there um i look for um fan feedback on there positive and negative we take all kinds uh, on this podcast or if you would like to contact me directly um, i am actually not a warlord employee um, i am i guess uh, a freelance helper and you can contact me if you look for my personal uh, podcast called cast dice c-a-s-t-d-i-c-e um, I have a Facebook page, and you can message me directly through there and give me um, your ideas, sneers, jeers, and criticisms. And I have to say thank you, a big thank you to all the people who have already done that. It has been wonderful to get your uh, your feedback, um, both the positive and the negative, and we've been applying it to the shows as they continue. Um, we are very keen for your ideas, and we will continue to implement them into the future as this show develops its own uh, personality, as it would. Without further ado, though, until next time, thank you for tuning in to the Warlord Games podcast. Good night. Mm -hmm.